Welcome to the Sharon Kleina Hour, health, environment, and the power of water. What you hear in the next hour could very well save your life. Now, here's your host, Sharon Kleina. I want to invite you to listen to the Sharon Kleina Hour. I'm Sharon Kleina. The theme of the show, the title of our show is Power of Water. Isn't that exciting? Water. Every week for six years, we have been discussing how important water is to the planet Earth and to the whole solar system. Around the world, as you've been listening, the crisis is getting out of control because individuals did not think in time to prepare for lack of water. They honestly believed if the rains keep coming down and they look like they could or would or should, that water will always be there. But did you notice that it isn't everywhere any longer, everywhere? Have you ever noticed in the Middle East how it's mostly sand? Have you ever noticed at different states in the United States that are crying over the fact that they're having to share water to other, with other states and they may not have enough of their own? Have you heard about countries like Singapore and Malaysia concerned about water because there's a pipeline coming from Malaysia into Singapore that the Malaysians decided to cut that off or charge them any more? They may not be able to afford it. Have you ever stopped to think about how important water is to survival every day? I know you've heard for years about how critical it is, but did you take it serious? Now, the body is 80 to 90% water. And did you notice that the medical field, the pharmaceutical companies, for some reason want to give you a Band-Aid? And I am going to support them forever. They are sincere, they're concerning, and they will save lives, but with a Band-Aid. But if you're not drinking 8 to 10 glasses of water a day, you're not taking water serious. 8 to 10 glasses of water are vital to your every day. Your body is a walking glass of water. If you want to have a a solvent and get rid of a flu or prevent the flu or think about an allergy, think about dry eye, think about overweight, think about uh, any diseases that may come on, that the toxin in the body may cause, remember, water is a solvent. And if you're drinking enough water, your chances are better than taking a medication to solve the problem. Water, water. I could tell you a young man that in Oregon, he was 300 pounds overweight. He decided to drink water. He started years ago with this water diet. He is now down to 195 pounds and absolutely cannot believe it was the water. He swears it was the water. So as you're thinking about your life and other people's lives that don't have the freedom and choices that you might have as a listener, remember over 1.1 billion people around the world do not have water available to them as a freedom. About 5,000 children are dying a day because they have no water. Their mommies have to watch their children die. They don't have water. Now, the food around the world, it takes water to grow the food. If you don't have proper water to sustain or for your culture to live, you're not going to have the right food. So malnutrition is out of control worldwide. Not just in the United States. We're having trouble. 
with our agriculture, as you've been hearing in California, they do not have the proper irrigation to water the fields. And as you know what happened, if they're not watering the fields, the irrigation canals that would be watering the fields, there is no food. But also the aquifers below those fields that were depending upon that irrigation drainage each season to help fill up or contribute to the water in the aquifers below the soil that you don't see. So there's more to it than we think. And we, we've got to get serious about where you're at and what you're trying to accomplish with the rest of the world. And with, can you imagine having on your conscience and the consciousness of leaders of the world that 5,000 children are dying a day without water? That's not acceptable in our society today. So think about it. And that's the goal of our show is to message around the world, Twitter it, Facebook it, do anything you have to do to save children's lives that don't have water. Bring it to attention to the leaders. Let's humiliate people. They need to know all children need water. Today we have a lot of excitement. I have Dr. Dwayne Cecil on, Ph.D. today. He's been with us many times, and Dwayne has got knowledge that is unbelievable. And today we're going to be discussing Earth, Earth's asteroids, including the 50-foot asteroid that's orbiting the Earth right now called 2012 DA-14. Dr. Cecil has been with us many times. He's formerly with NASA. He's formerly with the U.S. Geological Survey. His background is extraordinary for you to get the answers to what he's going to tell you about what's happening around our globe. And we'll even discuss a little bit about water. Our second guest is Brian Clark Howard. Brian is an environmental writer for the National Geographic News and a co-author of many books. We're going to be talking to him today. He's coming from Washington, D.C. We're going to be talking in, uh, in memory of Earth Day and the current issues that are happening with the planet and the abundance of nature and the disasters, what's going on with what he's been learning. But first, we're going to listen to our sponsor is Biologic Aqua Research Center. They have a product called Nature's Tears Eye Mist. Did you know that the surface of your eyes are 99% water? What happens when you touch it with an eye drop? It causes a flooding, a dehydration to replace lost moisture that causes dry eye. Dry means lack of water going dry. The only method is Nature's Tears Eye Mist, which is our sponsor, to mist the eyes with just a mist for moisture replacement. We'll listen to our sponsor and we'll be right back with Dr. Cecil. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Discover the secret of Nature's Tears Eye Mist, an entirely different approach to eye care without eye drops. When your tear film is dry, your eyes feel dry. Nature's Tears Eye Mist naturally supplements the tear film with Biologic Aqua Absolute Premium Standard Grade of pure, all-natural water. Nature's Tears Eye Mist, just a mist. All natural, safe, convenient, no preservatives. Nature's Tears Eye Mist can be purchased nationwide at selected eye care professionals and drugstores near you. 
You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Listening to the Sharon Kleina Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. If you have a question or comment, please direct your email to SharonKleinaHour at Yahoo.com. That's SharonKleinaHour at Yahoo.com. Now, back to the program. Dwayne, are you with us? I'm here. Well, thank you for joining us again. Oh, thank you. Thank well, you tell for us having about, me. Um, you know, I want your audience to hear your background is extraordinary. And the amount of work you've done with your education, your background, experiences, and dedication have been extraordinary. Tell our listeners a little bit about you, where you're at today. Okay. Um, I retired December 31st of, of 2011, just a little over three months ago, from federal service. After 31 years with, you mentioned NASA and the U.S. Geological Survey, I actually spent the last year and a half of my career working with NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, as a Western Region Climate Services Director. And my career has really been focused on uh, how do we use science, the results of the science and the research that we're doing in the field for societal benefit. So it's really been focused uh, predominantly on water, uh, looking at changes in, in global climate variability and change and the effect on water resources and, and how do we use that information, that science, to make more sound decisions, not necessarily better decisions. We are human beings, and even with, with good science and good economic uh, forecasts at our fingertips, we often don't make uh, good decisions, but at least they're better informed decisions. So. My career has really been focused on how do you provide better provide that information to the general public and to decision makers who change often and they change with elections. But how do you how do you provide that information to to folks that that need it and and build some trust in the information that you're providing, which has really been a, a struggle in the United States for lots of reasons. And so now, since uh, January 6th, I've been working with a company called Global Science and Technology. I'm the, the program director for climate data, satellite climate data records, uh, working at the NOAA lab in Asheville, North Carolina, the National Climatic Data Center. And what we're attempting to do here is build a systematic way of using 30 to 40 years of satellite data that we have amassed now uh, on a global scale, use that information to try to better understand what's happened happening globally with the climate variability and change, what are the natural drivers, and try to tease out any uh, human drivers that, that may be changing uh, the climate or having, having an effect at least on local climates. And how do, we, how do we use that information then to make better informed decisions and better, better plans? And you're, I listened to your introduction. You're talking about the need for really realizing where we are on a global scale with water resources. I, you know, I, I, I've said it often on your show, but it's, I couldn't agree with you more that um, we need to, to educate from the bottom up, from the top down, the, the challenges that we're facing on this planet with fresh water resources. And I'll give you a quick example, and I've, I've used this one before on your show. I'm, I'm pretty sure I have. Um, I did some work in the Salt Lake, uh, 
Valley on the Wasatch Front in Utah. And the projections there, the climate projections there, are by 2035, up to a third of the snowpack will not be available for water resources. And that's as much of the western United States depends on water or snowpack for water resources, for agriculture, uh, for city development, for all kinds of things, for ranches. It's, it's critical in the western U.S. as it is everywhere. And that snowpack in the Salt Lake Valley is projected to decline by a full third by the year 2035. The population of the valley is projected to double over that same time period. So that's just one example. And it's that way across the globe, that the population's increasing, the, the need and demand for food's increasing, and the available water resources are going the other direction. So we really need to start thinking about that on a global scale and not only think about it but start building it into to all the things we do and all the planning we do and all the educational systems we provide that we really have to start thinking about where are we going to get the food for this population that's increasing and there's over 7 billion people now and right. by 2035 it's projected to be 9 billion and I've right. seen some, some calculations that, that say that in that time period, by that time period, 2035, we need to double our food production. Yeah, the population in the United States, just in, I mean, in the world, just grew last week by 1,476,511 people. And as that continues to develop all over the world, people are not realizing uh, the impact of the food and the water resources, sanitation for health, health and safety, because if people aren't healthy, that's very contaminating and contagious to the rest of the world. And uh, people don't realize that it's sad what happened here, Dwayne. We can argue, the world can argue about all these things they want for the personal comfort and their outlook on their politics, their outlook on their religions, outlook on whatever they want to argue about and dis- disagree with, but they all have one thing in common, Dwayne, water. That's that correct. brings the world together with a relationship that we all have in common. It's the water. It is. Yeah, it's the need for water. I mean, we we can't develop, we can't uh, provide uh, sustainable food resources. Uh, we can't provide a, a quality of life for the Earth's inhabitants without water. I mean, it's it's key and to it everything. And what everybody could agree with, if they disagreed, <laughs> excuse me, with everything else. Even if they had the total respect of everybody's lives every day, being respected with choices of freedom of wishes of what. But we all agree, without the water, there is no life. There is no meaning for life. And the the health hazards are out of control. And without water, people have more exhaustion and fatigue and stress. Uh, Stress is the body is, the brain is 80% water. Well, if the brain is under stress and dehydrated and getting more anxiety and coming under mental conditions of emotions and they don't have enough water to be able to drink water and, and have the water in the air humidity and then they're not having the suitable choices of food nutrition, what's the emotions going to do? It's going to create anger. No, and people, right. there's much more than just the obvious. And you're right. Now you're going to talk today, to though, about the solar flares. 
Well, I was going to talk a little bit about the, the asteroid as well, but uh, before we get to that, I just wanted to, to mention that, that you had talked a, a little bit about, even in this country, that we're starting to experience uh, water shortages, even in the United States, and, and there's states that are that we wouldn't have thought of 10 years ago when you talked about drought. You know, generally, we all think the Southwest and um, arid, semi-arid uh, portions of the United States, but the Southeast, Georgia... Uh, Alabama, Mississippi, that area has experienced drought conditions over the last five years and, and extreme water shortages in, in the metropolitan Atlanta area and, and states' rights uh, taking precedence on who, who gets the water and who's upstream. And so those debates are, are on in areas now in this, in this country that we wouldn't even thought about drought conditions before. And I also wanted to just talk a little bit before we get into the, into the asteroid. Yeah, discussion. go ahead. You, this, is, uh, this water issue is so vital to saving lives. Well, I can is. almost eventually see, sadly, in a, a foresight, and the audience can think about it too, but can you imagine the time coming and saying when a person wants to move into the country, I mean the state, and they'll say, we, I'm sorry, we have no more water for one more person. Oh, yeah. We're having you to support water for all these people, and we can only afford to handle the people we have in here in our state. The borders will come back again because of water. And when you look at the the winter that we all just experienced in the, in the lower 48 states of the United States, it's the fourth warmest uh, winter on record and, and some record low snowfalls in the mountains and mm-hmm. And again, you know, those, that's the, the precipitation is the source of our water resources. And if you look at March, there wasn't a single state, including Hawaii and Alaska, there wasn't a single state in the 50 states that did not experience record warm temperatures. There was mm-hmm. over 15,000 record warm temperatures in the much, mm-hmm. month of March across the United States. About 7,700 daytime temperature records were broken and 7,500 nighttime temperatures were broken the month of March. Now, we're having in the news this last weekend and the past few weeks, but especially this weekend, what is happening with these tornadoes in states that we never even knew that tornadoes were known to be there. And why is it some of these states are getting more tornadoes than the rest of us have ever heard? Uh, maybe they've always had those tornadoes, but the, the, the impact with those tornadoes, there's towns that are devastated. I don't know how they could possibly afford to rebuild well, there's, there's a, a couple parts to the, to the answer to that question, and this isn't the, the complete answer, but partially answering that question. Uh, as I've mentioned before, my, my interpretation of clo- climate variability and change on a global scale is it's really an energy balance equation. And as we, if the Earth was the size of a basketball, the atmosphere is a single sheet of paper stretched over that basketball, and that's what we have for an atmosphere. And as you change the energy balance in that, that thin atmosphere and you warm it up, the, the planet moves that energy around to try to uh, self-regulate. It moves that energy around by winds and storms. And so as the energy builds up, apparently the, the frequency of more extreme storms to move that energy around also goes up. And so that's a partial answer. The, another part of the answer is that in, in recent and, and near real-time recorded history, there are a lot more people in the way, a lot more structures in the way of these storms. And so 
we see through the media more effects of these extreme events. And so, as you as you mentioned earlier, they may have had tornadoes in those areas, but there was no record of them. There was no, nothing in the way. Nothing was damaged. Now there are towns in the way and houses in the way and farms in the way. And so the media picks up on, on the damage and destruction that's done to the infrastructure and to, and to the societal framework and the, and the people. Mm-hmm. And so it appears that uh, there are more extreme events happening. But if you look at the data, uh, the data also say that it, it, it appears that as the atmosphere warms up and whether it's a natural uh, climate change cycle or there is some human driver to that, the atmosphere is, is warming up. And I'm going to ask up, you because you, yeah, you just said something that I've often wondered about. Could the wind turbines that are out there, that they're going for other purposes, but could the wind turbines be affecting or could they, could they potentially affect uh, uh, to help assist the, uh, the change of the atmosphere there, uh, of the temperature, the barometer? If they, if they knew that there was something changing and it would cause tornadoes, is there a way that the, the wind turbines could help affect to maybe uh, make the impact not as, as uh, um, uh, controlling as it ends up being like what happened uh, with these horrible tornadoes that they just had? Is there anything anybody could do? But if, let's say people are already living there, they have for many years, and you're right, we humans have a tendency to live by the water when we know the floods are coming. We'll live where there are tornadoes. We'll live when in an area like San Francisco when they know earthquakes can happen at any time, um, volcanoes near where volcanoes are at, we as humans seem to think that we'll survive anything. Uh, is there anything that a person could learn with the atmosphere in those areas to, to be able to change the course of a tornado? Is there anything well, at all ever? That's, a, that's an interesting question. You know, people have, and there are people working now on, on trying to come up with engineering solutions to, to climate variability and change. And, and under the Bush administration, there was actually a systematic, formalized attempt to uh, look at, at ways to engineer changes in, in climate variability and, and climate change itself. And that systematic formal way was through a thing the Bush administration came up with called the the Climate Change Technology Program, which was headed by the Department of Energy. And their goal was to really look at uh, the science behind climate variability and change and look at ways that we might be able to engineer our way out of it. You know, we have to do some of that, but I think it, it needs to be, in my opinion, weighted on the on the conservation side. How do we conserve water resources and how do we conserve energy and how do we do it on an individual basis? How do we do it on a national basis? And, and that engineering would be helpful. But to, to think that we could put something up to, um, to, to change nature and to change how the of planet course. self-regulates, you know, I, I think it's, it's just um, it, it might be doable, but it would be so costly. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, just, and, and, if, and then the climate changes and you have this engineering solution in place and the climate changes and now you have to come up with another engineering oh, solution. Oh, right. It would be like high tech. Everything changes every second. Right. It's like right. the algorithm of, of uh, the uh, Internet. Uh, we're learning it changes every time somebody hits a keyboard. Climate is that way, I know. And you think about, the, you mentioned the wind farms, and if you think about where the wind farms are positioned in the first place, 
there really are the wind, windy areas to take advantage of that sustained yeah. that sustained wind energy to convert to to power to electrical generation. But um, they're not really designed to to change that. They want to take advantage of that. So mm-hmm. it's um, I think the answer quick answer to your question is is no that you know we couldn't couldn't use I right, couldn't afford it because it would change every moment. All right. So, yeah, well, it was just a thought. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was oh. trying to decide how uh, you you mentioned a word there that, um, you know, the human drivers, what can human drivers do? Uh, I was wondering, I, I, my mind went another direction, Wayne. <laughs> well, I've said it on your show before, Sharon. I think that if we concentrate on on global population control and water resources, then we automatically address all the other issues in the environment that we have to deal with, things like urban sprawl and water resource degradation and invasive species and, and changing ecosystems. If we, if we truly systematically address the, the over-proliferation of human population and water resources, I think we, we start addressing climate variability and change and, and energy resource allocation and, and all those things get, get addressed if we would do it on a global scale and do it systematically, I think that... Well, that could bring us all together, and I don't think there would be a lot of feuding if people decided the most important goal on earth to live together is allow the freedom of worship prayer, allow the peace within what people want in their own lives, in their own states or countries or villages or communities. But the goal is to make sure that water is a primary goal. You know, I don't want to. I don't want to differ with you, but I do want to point out that you know, if 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 we start talking about population control, then we we are automatically going to be um, at issue with with some large organized religious groups on the planet, and you know that's something that we have to we have to all sit down at the table and try to work our way through that. I mean, how do you how do we address resources, finite resources on a planet where it looks like the human population is not finite, that it's headed in, the, in an infinite direction. Mm-hmm. The planet just cannot, on the surface, sustain in a Western lifestyle, cannot sustain a human population that's headed to 9 billion and above for very long. And, and we're going to get infrastructure collapsing and, and water supply systems collapsing and food production can't keep up. And we just we have to somehow... Um, address it with political leaders, with religious leaders, uh, with people from the science field of science, both social and, and physical sciences. Uh, how do we address that together? And you know, it's it, it's a huge challenge. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe water would be the word that would bring them together to each person, each company, each company, each person, each country, and culture could get decide how they would go for their thinking that water is the primary source for their people to live. We have in the areas that are overpopulated where a lot of those children are dying a day, Dwayne, that 5,000 children a day. It's, isn't it hard to imagine? We go to war for fighting for what? And then we're not fighting for 5,000 children a day not to die? Right. I, I hear you. And, I, I... And, and, you know, I look at it like, I know I say it like a tone of voice, but, Dwayne, I want you to know, my show and me, and I am looking toward the future, that I am goaling myself to potentially 
to where our words and our descriptions of life and death with those 5,000 children, and I'm not saying mothers, I'm saying they're mommies, are having to watch them die. And that is inexcusable that because water is available. We just have to make sure that all those children and their mommies have water, and then the food will come with it together in their villages mm-hmm. or wherever they live. But people in this country, too, have to realize we're living in a very modern society, but what if some year we don't have the ability to turn, flush the toilet? What if some year we can't get up in the morning and do what I do, have my first glass of water? I'll give you an example of of how dire that can get that's that's in the news right now. You look at Haiti, which is the the Haitian population is is facing an outbreak of cholera. And what happens when they had the earthquake there, um, I believe it was two years ago, when they had the, the huge earthquake, some United Nations workers that went there for the right reason um, had faulty latrine facilities, and they brought the cholera bug with them and their faulty sewage disposal latrine facilities put the cholera into the water supply of, the, of Haiti. And now they're near wow. epidemic outbreak of cholera in Haiti, so they don't have... Oh. I mean, that's right next door. They don't have access to good water. They don't have access to good water treatment facilities, and, and they have a near epidemic outbreak of cholera. And that's that's right now Boy, that's sure one of our close neighbors. That hasn't gotten on the news. Yeah, it's it's um, <laughs> it's pretty incredible. But um, I would. We only that. have a few more minutes left now. Okay. Um, uh, I, 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 every time you and I get on, it could go for an hour or two, and I. That's why I really appreciate you taking your time and coming on and teaching us as much on the asteroids, including that 150-foot asteroid. What what is that all about? Tell me uh, a little right, bit about yeah. your background. Okay. It'll be exciting to hear it. Okay, to, to talk a, a little bit about it, that's uh, 2012 DA-14, which uh, passed within about one and a half million miles of the Earth on February 16th. And because of the orbit that it's in, it's in pretty much the same orbit that the Earth is around the mm-hmm. sun. And so because of the orbit that uh, we share nearly together, it will pass our way again on February 15th of 2013, and then it will only be 17,000 miles away. And it's about 150 foot, as you pointed out, about 117,000 miles diameter. isn't very far away. It's not very far away. Our but planes fly higher than that. It does. It does miss us, but that's that's pretty darn close. And I, I would direct your your listeners to a NASA site that's uh, NEO period JPL period NASA dot okay. gov, and okay. the NEO is near Earth orbits, and they have a daily update of asteroids that that are uh, in near earth orbits and the next one is that comes close to us is April 18th which is just a couple of days away that one is 750 feet in diameter but it the closest it gets to us is 17 million miles and so uh, your your listeners that are interested could go to that near earth orbit JPL is jetpropulsionlab.nasa.gov and and get all kinds of information and they have some really good graphics there and some good animations to talk about um, now, asteroids. Now, I, I, and when I said seventy thousand uh, miles, I didn't mean my uh, the planes fly that high. Um, but I, but I, but I correct that real quick. Um, but anyway, back to all of these things happening out there in, in the universe. 
is that probably is not helping this climate change either and what's going on. Well, I, you know, I, it's, it's debatable whether or not those kinds of things are, are affecting in, in, in decadal time scales uh, our climate variability and change. The sun certainly has an influence. Uh, the sun's energy is, is, is extremely important in understanding. And you had mentioned the, the solar flares, and, and we're just we're about uh, where we were 50 years ago on predicting changes in, in our weather in our own atmosphere, we're about that same point trying to understand space weather. And again, in our solar system, the, the sun is the, the energy and the driver for the changes in, in solar weather. And we're just, we're in our infancy and in really trying to understand the, the, the weather, but it's all tied together eventually. Mm-hmm. And so we've, we've got a lot of work to do. And the, and the solar flares you'd mentioned um, you know, they can disrupt uh, global positioning systems. They can uh, interrupt disrupt uh, satellite communications uh, they can disrupt power the power grid and if we get a solar flare like the one the earth experienced in 1859 if we we got another one like that we have about 20 hours that we can put the word out to our our energy producers and and the energy companies and and get the transformers offline before that surge gets here because it it will literally take out Everything. So we'll have temporary blackouts, but we can get get the energy system back up and and working. Um, but you can imagine that if we didn't do that, what what it means to um, power, lights, heat, computers. Oh, look what's happening systems, with all this computer. All gone. Internet <laughs> relation communications that where everybody is hooked on it. Everything is depending upon it. If that's yes. why they're worried about hacking. Um, uh, that people can c- create a hacking problem and be worse than p- uh, bringing um, uh, atomic bombs into the country. Uh, they've really been worried more about that. Yep. So, again, uh, well, we're, uh, we're out of time. And uh, keep up the good work as usual. Your background is just unbelievable with experience uh, to tell us about what is happening out there. And people have to realize we might be putting it living on the planet Earth, but if we st- jumped up and down and all of a sudden you find that the force of the Earth is with us or against us, we've got to realize water is a primary. And then you're telling us we don't dare stop educating ourselves, learning about the solar system and what is going on out there and let NASA do their work and people like you do your work so that we can understand it and life can go on forever, but it won't if we're not learning more about it. Yeah, it's all connected. All connected. Well, you have a nice day. Now, do you live in North Carolina? Yes, I am. I'm how, do you like, how do you like it there? Um, I, again, it was, you know, I, I had this vision in, in my head of North Carolina and I'd looked, I've visited here often at the National Climatic Data Center, but uh, we're going through a dry period here now too, and so ah. it's you know we're feeling the effects everywhere of changes in in the weather and changes in climate, changes in population. Uh-huh. But I do like it. I miss Idaho. That's home. That's home. But North uh-huh. Carolina's home for now. All right. Well, you, uh, thank you for your time today, and uh, well, I'm looking forward to the next time you're coming on, Dwayne. Well, thanks for having me, and, and keep the show going. Thank you. That's very thank special. You. you said that. Thank you. Thank you. You be well. You too. Thank you. Well, we can thank Dr. Cecil for taking his time again. And, oh, do we ever learn a lot when he's on. Our next guest is Brian Howard, and he's a, 
uh, writes for the National Geographic News and co- has a co-authored many books. And today we're going to talk with him, too, about Earth Day and the current issues with our planet and the abundance of what's happening with uh, disasters and nature. And so we're going to hurry up and go to our sponsor. Nature's here as I miss, so we can come back and listen to Brian. Now listen to our sponsor and be right back with Brian. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. Discover the secret of Nature's Tears Eye Mist, an entirely different approach to eye care without eye drops. When your tear film is dry, your eyes feel dry. Nature's Tears Eye Mist naturally supplements the tear film with Biologic Aqua Absolute Premium Standard Grade of pure, all-natural water. Nature's Tears Eye Mist, just a mist. All-natural, safe, convenient, no preservatives. Nature's Tears Eye Mist can be purchased nationwide at selected eye care professionals and drugstores near you. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Listening to the Sharon Kleina Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. If you have a question or comment, please direct your email to Sharon Kleina Hour at Yahoo.com. That's Sharon Kleina Hour at Yahoo.com. Now, back to the program. Brian, are you with us? Yes. Hi, Sharon. Thanks for having uh, me. Thank you for joining us. I'm going to tell the audience real quick. Uh, Brian uh, is an award-winning multimedia journalist, editor, writer, photographer, social media consultant, and has more than a decade of experience. He's also been involved with the National Geographic as an award-winning website and writer. He, uh, before that, he was uh, worked online as a journalist with MailOnline.com, the U.S. website of the British newspaper, The Daily Mail, and one of the world's most, most trafficked news designations. So you have been getting around and yeah. you've been doing that for a decade. So you're not that old yet. <laughs> oh, thank you. Well, uh, Brian, I'm 70. So, and I'm never going to be quitting. So. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> but anyway, as you know, uh, the show is starting at six year. It's called The Power of Water. And I don't know, were you able to listen to Dr. Cecil, uh, part of the show that we, our, our last guest? I heard a little bit of it. Now, it's his background really is extraordinary, extraordinary. You, I've got to get his story someday. His background is just extraordinary. But tell us about what you've been doing and where, where, you're, where you've come from, where you're at, and we're going to talk about Earth Day, too. Great. Well, it's, uh, it is Earth Week. Happy Earth Week. Happy, happy Earth uh, Week. Happy Earth Day on Sunday. Uh, always a good, exciting time of year. It's always nice for uh, spring as well. Um, mm-hmm. It's actually been an unusual spring, and I moved to Washington, D.C. to come work for National Geographic just uh, in September. And uh, we actually had, it was officially just tabulated that Washington, D.C. had the warmest winter ever on record. So uh, it was extremely mild here. Uh, I came from New York City. Uh, I used to work in media up there. So mm-hmm. it was a... Uh, Quite the mild winter, but uh, but it's been great. It's uh, it's really exciting to work here at National Geographic. There's always so much going on, and so many explorers around the world that are uh, going out there and seeing amazing things and coming Can back. Can you imagine the world with National Geographic? The, 
the informational index that you have available to you to go study whatever you want to study now to do what you want to write about. So your focus has been on, um, what has your focus been since you've been with the National Geographic? Well, actually, it's, uh, a lot of what I work on fits nicely with your show because it's, uh, I do a lot of work on fresh water, actually. Okay. Um, within the last uh, couple of months, I helped launch this blog that we call Water Currents that mm-hmm. uh, focuses on freshwater issues around the world, uh, especially consumption, it, mm-hmm. sort of decreasing consumption, understanding consumption globally, uh, both mm-hmm. on an individual level, like things you can do as a family, as an individual to save water, and also uh, on more of a large policy scale, looking at agriculture and energy power plants. Mm-hmm. And then also looking at river networks, river basins, and how to better protect them, uh, shore them up, uh, protect their biodiversity, catalog, understand the biodiversity, mm-hmm. and how uh, the health of rivers is pretty integral to the health of ecosystems and ultimately mm-hmm. to the health of all of us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we've oh, assembled... Half a dozen great bloggers who are experts in the field, uh, academics, journalists, um, and um, uh, travel writers uh, who contribute to the blog regularly, and then I I write for it as well. So that's been a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. And your topic right now has been lots of discussion about water. Yes, exactly. Well, you know, you may not have heard that Dwayne and I have talked for Dr. Cecil for years about on the show about water, and we brought people from all over the world on water. We've been in Holland. We've been in Kenya. We've been all over about the issues of water, um, Brian. And and what is your overview of the uh, of, uh, of well the water? What did you find out when you dove into it, and all of a sudden you're looking at it open mindedly, as a journalist should. And what has happened here with the concern of water? What have you been finding out? Well, one of the things that uh, we found here at National Geographic that's really interesting is um, when we start talking to people about water, water use, how to save water, they you know they always think about, oh, well, I'll, I'll turn off my faucet when I um, don't brush my teeth. And, uh, you know, maybe I'll... Uh, do one less load of laundry a week, things like that. Um, mm-hmm. And that's great. Those are That's a great place to start. Those are definitely worthwhile things to do. But what p- people really don't realize is that we need to go look a lot deeper than that because that's actually um, overall in the United States so-called household water use, which is those kinds of things, is only mm-hmm. 5% for our total water footprint. Mm-hmm. Our, our water footprint is sort of a, a phrase that describes all the water that we use. And it, it's it is pretty complicated. There's multiple uh, facets to the water that we use, but the majority of it is agriculture. Uh, a lot of that is raising animals for uh, for meat and for uh, for dairy for eggs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a big it's a big impact. Luckily, there are ways to start chipping away at that and decreasing that. There's also a tremendous amount of water and other products that we use. It's something like two thousand gallons of water that uh, really go into the equivalent of making one T-shirt because you need use so much water to grow cotton. Oh, it's amazing so. how, uh, in fact, I would have had that in front of me to discuss some of that, that what it takes to grow, uh, for the, wa- the amount of water to do things that you forget the water is in that to, to produce that product. Right. Uh, just because exactly it right. uh, doesn't show there's any water, it, it's what it takes to produce a product using water. Right. People we, don't uh, think that way, Brian. Bring that, up, bring that up again to them. Uh, what you've been learning about what the amount of water it takes to produce a product, not the food. We'll get away from that and the, the common sense stuff. 
But my and drinking, we'll get away from the drinking water. We won't discuss. But the amount of water, and I should have had that in front of me, that takes to produce some of the pro, uh, these products that are out there, an abundant amount of water, and it's thrown away into the ground as uh, polluted water because they had to produce a product that the water became polluted. Right. That's exactly. So, what right. do you know about? Do you have in front of you uh, some of those products? Like you said, uh, T-shirts. There's there's other things that that takes to produce a product. That's exactly right. And uh, we have a few interactives on the site on nationalgeographic.com that are uh, fun uh, uh, to sort of look at. And you can compare uh, related products and see which has more embedded water or which takes more water to use. So you can right. look at, like, coffee versus tea, for example. And that's another interesting example because, uh, of course, both of those are liquid. So, of course, they have water in them. And mm-hmm. you know, people immediately think of that. But they don't realize that it actually is much more water goes into the product behind the scenes to grow the coffee and tea. There we go. Yeah, that's what my information said, um, that uh, the amount of production, water produ- it takes to produce the water or, and, 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 I mean, the coffee and the tea from behind the scenes is an enormous amount of water. But luckily there is a consumer, an element of consumer choice. So we found, for instance, that to produce one gallon of coffee, uh, requires an average of 880 gallons of water for everything behind the scenes. There we but go. if you compare that with tea, that's, it's only 128 gallons of water for a gallon of tea. You mean my drinking my tea? I'm, I'm not using it. <laughs> exactly. Now you, I'm, you, my conscience is clear. I drink tea. <laughs> there you go. Of course, it's, uh, you know, we, we do mention that water is not the only issue. Uh, you know, whenever you're dealing with products, you know, there's issues like uh, worker rights and... Uh, Transportation issues, but it's certainly uh, it's good to give consumers information, and um, you know it's definitely a piece piece of the puzzle. So now, have you gone in and studied, Brian, what is happening to you know when the rain comes down at the beginning of time when Earth be- first formed and it began this precipitation called rain, and it came pounding down and it went down into the aquifers, and then when it filled up the aquifer at whatever spot on Earth first it began what's called a drainage of rivers, stream, creeks, lakes, down to the ocean, the lowest point, and then to the lowest sea level. Uh, what has happened here throughout this long, many millions of years later, is those aquifers have to be kept filled. And then also, if, there, if there's not enough rain in that particular location in time, is what, what are they doing to store the water into reservoirs so they can be prepared to keep the aquifers primed above the ground with, uh, with these storage of waters so that mankind and all life and, and also crops and uh, could also have the water they require, but also with that storage of water puts moisture back into the air and it draws attention to the atmosphere to keep the humidity somewhat healthier by doing that, not letting the streams going so uh, shallow. Now the ocean's coming up, but the streams are getting more shallow, and the aquifers are getting smaller. Have you been learning anything about any of that at all? Yes. We uh, looked at a particular, if you remember the Ogallala Aquifer, mm-hmm. which is a huge underground lake, really an ocean of water. And, then, and that is, we'll tell our audience where that's at. It's... Uh, it's, yeah, it's underneath the uh, much of the Great Plains, but in places, uh, there's places where the water table uh, has dropped more than 100 feet. 
Right. Because and that's what the, the aquifers are dropping and getting smaller. Yep. It's, uh, it's something called the recharge rate, which is, uh, as you mentioned, how much surface water uh, rain is coming. Uh, you know, it's, it's only a certain part of ground is going to feed into that aquifer. And a lot of times it's fairly complicated. Uh, it's actually quite, uh, it can be quite risky to, uh, you know, overdraw any aquifer because you don't always, and even hydrogeologists don't always necessarily know what, how big the aquifer is, what's connected to what. You start to get a lot of uh, a battle, sometimes uh, quite contentious. Sometimes towns can lose their water supply or you have, uh, you know, towns go up against industry and these kinds of battles can be uh, really heated and really important, and they're they're getting more common uh, across much of the planet. Well, let's just say it. It's going to be water wars because yeah. people are upset that, um, that in, 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 and let's just go back to our uh, political situation. When you get people in positions, you think they're thinking about all the safety and the healthiness of the environment of life in their jobs. And we're forgetting the primary goal for every single political issue should be water number first, number one, then number two, sanitation, and keeping up with the atmosphere of what is happening. So we're prepared always for life on Earth to go on and not have these water wars that other countries have had. Yep, these countries like Yemen, have you do, being with National Geographic, uh, you can probably look this up or already know it, but over in Yemen... They've been battling over water in those tribes for years, way before they talked about what's going on now. Uh, we, they were fighting with each other over water wars and tribes becoming extinct because they wouldn't have enough water. Yep, that's exactly right. In fact, I went to a, a presentation last week at the World Watch Institute, and someone mentioned that uh, their analysis of conflict in Africa said, Virtually every conflict in recent history had at least some component of water, of conflict over water. So it's uh, well, don't you? I you think know, what might be happening is we forgot about what it was all about so far back, the origination of the conflict, and all of a sudden they've got another interpretation to the uh, conflict of 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 life and death, of distinction, or it's either you exist or you don't exist if you don't have water. And those tribes and those countries and different countries started battling so far back that our news media forgot to mention what the battle started out to be. That's right. And even over in Singapore and Malaysia, Brian, there's a pipe that comes from Malaysia to bring water over to Singapore that there's always this cloud above the head, you be good to me or you won't have the water or it will become more expensive. See, people right. don't realize in these states like coming from Colorado, coming into these different states out of Colorado, that water, there may be a time when Colorado says, listen, I like to live in my state. I'm setting up borders so nobody moves in here. Because I, I, we can't afford to, to have one more person on a drop of water. And then you states that are on our water, they'll up the ante and, make, and bring um, better than oil, water, make more money on selling the water than they ever would have if they had an oil well. Yep. The, uh, ha- the, do you think that could happen in um, sometime? Because water is becoming such an issue. It's definitely a big issue. Uh, the one thing I'll say is that there is some good news. Uh, one of them is that people uh, do tend to also cooperate pretty well on water. Uh, it tends to be less politicized than some other issues. There's a lot in the case of the Colorado River, for example. There's a 
a long-standing working group that it, it's uh, transnational. The uh, is one of the early treaties between the United States and Mexico actually specifies how much of the water uh, in the U.S. gets the lion's share of it. Uh, actually, the Colorado only goes into Mexico a little bit, but uh, and then it spells out exactly how much each state gets. Um, of course, that's controversial because things change over time and. You can argue about maybe the state should get the state should get more or less at this point, uh, but it is they do actually cooperate pretty well. Uh, but there's definitely a real uh, a real concern about that. And if you look at like Israel and Jordan, for example, they despite their uh, relatively cold peace and there's not a lot of uh, diplomacy and a lot of issues across borders, but there is on water. They've had they have a good uh, a joint working group. On water, uh, they've had to they because to they've have. got that river in between there yep, that they that's know all, that's all the water that, they yes, have. Right. So, uh, in, in the river, it, it is uh, badly drained and it is actually badly polluted, the Jordan River. But mm-hmm. at least uh, there is some cooperation. So, there's a lot. There's a long way to go. Uh, I think there's there's definitely a lot of risk uh, there, but there is some good news as well. And you also mentioned Singapore. Uh, the most exciting thing about that is uh, Singapore has a, a commitment to recycle. I believe their target is 100% of all water that they use. Uh, in this, of course, it's a You're very right. small country, are, so it's easy to Thank do you that. for bringing easier. that up. They are recycling the water, yes. So that, They're the uh, one of the countries all over the world that's really had a successful recycling. Yeah, and it's actually it's been very strong economically. Could I have you on again sometime, and we'll discuss that, and you can do some research on that, because sure. that recycling be of the great. water is such an exciting and positive story. It is, and a lot of it, it is coming to the U.S., they're... In Los Angeles, actually, they have a big, they're building right now a big plant to recycle a lot mm-hmm. of water. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's modeled after Singapore. It's not quite to, lo- to that scale yet. Mm-hmm. But uh, Singapore is actually. Can we have a show on that with you sometime, Brian? Can I, uh, we'll have Polly Featherton, my program person. Could we discuss more about the recycling of water and what the future of that is? Can you discuss that topic pretty good with us? Sure, that'd be great. Oh, I'd like to do that. I, I'm glad you brought that up today. Well, we're out of time, and I really enjoyed this. And I'd like to have another show with you on, if you would, at your moment. It's really appreciated your time today. And just discuss this recycling of water uh, throughout the United States and the world and what Singapore has learned to do. I think that's a very positive story about water. Sure. Okay, well, thank thank you. you for joining us. Thank you. Okay, you have a nice day. And what's the weather like today back there? Very hot. It's supposed to hit 90 today. In Washington, D.C., 90 today? Yep. Oh, my gosh. That's what they say. Your, your uh, cherry blossoms have really blossomed. <laughs> yep. Well, you, you have a nice day, and be well, and thank you for thank joining you. us. Thank you. Bye. Wow, what two guests today, and I say this a lot. Wow. Um, but anyway, uh, Joint Dr. Cecil gave us a lot of uh, foresight, and then Brian Howard, which is a writer with the National Geographic News, and has given us a lot of ideas there, and I'm going to have him back and discuss what is happening with recycling water, and we'll bring back Dr. Cecil, and we'll uh, talk to him because that would be a good subject for Dr. Cecil too. Recycling water. See what could, we could do to learn what the show is, how important we can learn to impress upon people how important it is to learn these things and get it out to you uh, and our audience. Get the Twitter out. Start talking about recycle water. Learn more about it. Well, I want to thank you for listening today. Uh, happy Earth Week. It is our Earth, your Earth. We're all in this together. L- embrace your life every moment and somebody else's. This is Earth Week. 
But I want to tell you, Earth is whispering back to us with a whisper. Don't take it all with you. Earth has said, leave something behind. Leave your footprint because you're that special to all of us. Each person is. I want to thank you for listening. Have a nice day and be well. Thank you for listening. Join us next week for another edition of the Sharon Kleiner Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water, Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Remember to visit Sharon's website at SharonKleinerHour.com. 